Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 303 of our Kick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Transforming Touch, an interview with Samantha Lynn. Today, I had the honor of past podcast guest Margot Gunning joining me as my brilliant podcast co-host for this interview. Margot and I talked to Samantha, who's a nutritional therapy practitioner, vaccine education specialist, and transforming touch practitioner, and she completely blew us away. During this interview, you're going to experience the deepest conversation we've ever had about the nervous system and its importance in overcoming chronic illness like Lyme disease. So without further ado, Samantha Lynn. Hi, Samantha. Welcome to the Tick Bootcamp podcast. We're so happy to have you. Thank you. I'm so excited to dive into everything we have in store today. I know. I know you, obviously. Um, I'm really looking forward to just hearing about, I've kind of seen a little bit of the evolution that you've gone through with with mold, with parasites, with candida and all of the things and really trying in a, a route in the beginning and then really seeing kind of the evolution of how things go. So I'd love to just dive into the first thing that literally happens as we become a human being, which is birth. Um, and maybe just describing a little bit about your birth and how you're really learning now that that, that played into kind of everything that physically manifested. Sure. Yeah. So I'm going to tell a little bit of my story and try to make it apply to more than just me, because I think we all see the patterns that are happening in the traditional birth system. Um, hearing that someone was a C-section baby is quite common. I'm not sure of the statistics, but it's a pretty high rate for C-section births. Um, people don't typically blink an eye at that. I was, um, I'm 31, so I was born in 91, and I was born via C-section after I um, allegedly was stuck in the birth canal. And so the there's distress involved with that. And then, of course, there's the terrain piece, you know, not getting the microbiome in your orifices as you are exiting the canal. Um, and at that time, you know, I, microbiome wasn't really a, a mainstream topic. So most mothers wouldn't have known that that was even something to be concerned with, but it does in some regards, put a person at a disadvantage to, to be born via C-section. And, um, yeah, so I guess that was the first, the first insult, but I, I also like, just want to clarify before we get into all of these insults and, um, you know, things that are kind of stacked against us. I just want to clarify that like just one of these things isn't like the end of the world. I think sometimes people can hear these things and they think, oh no, all is lost. I have all these things stacked against me. You know, we're just, we're just painting a picture here. So bringing a little regulation in. <laughs> exactly. And do you have any education or understanding about maybe your mom's status, you know, through pregnation and how she, how she dealt with that being pregnant before the C-section? Um, not a whole lot. I mean, for me that I know there's a generational piece. Um, there's a history of adoption in my family and I know that can, uh, that's a very primal wounding that occurs and can affect for multiple generations. I'm sure some of you have probably seen the memes um, showing that you are in your mother's womb as an egg and she's in 
your grand, you know, your grandmother's womb. And so your eggs actually existed when you were in your grandmother's womb, your eggs inside your mom, inside your grandmother. I think that's the Russian doll um, yes. <laughs> picture that I'm painting here. Um, but also like, you know, mineral status, this was, you know, my, my parents would have probably been one of the first generations to really be, you know, mostly on like a standard American diet for at least the second half of their lives, you know, and we know about all the fortified foods and how that can affect mineral status and, um, fillings, silver, like mercury fillings and how that can affect, you know, the, the mineral status and just the overall health and toxicity. And, you know, again, these are things that nobody really knew about at the time. So I hope that if there are some from the older generations on here, that that doesn't bring any guilt to the forefront. Just know that, you know, this wasn't known information, at least not widely. Exactly. No, it just, it wasn't known. And I know a lot of Bruce Lipton's work, um, biology of belief, you know, kind of talks about similar things of, we just didn't have, the parents didn't have the education. And so it's not a matter of right or wrong. It's just, you know, a lack of education. What it, uh, about going back to the C-section, obviously we know now that massively affects the microbiome, et cetera. Do you have any thoughts you want to elaborate on just being a C-section baby? I was as well. So I, I definitely can relate there. And I, looking back, I think it's just a very interesting whole concept. Um, and, you know, it, at the end of the day, it's just the start of terrain theory. But um, do you have any thoughts that you'd like to elaborate on that? Yeah, I mean, speaking from like a more psychological or energetic spiritual perspective, there are some theories from experts that are far more expert than myself who talk about sort of the personality presentation of the different um, birth methods. So people who are born naturally, people who are born, um, you know, via C-section or breach, like there's different personality profiles that can show up in people. I found that to be really interesting. And I think one, one of the, the hallmarks of the C-section was sort of like a learned helplessness or like a, I can't do it. It's too hard. It's too much. And like wanting someone to come in and help you and do it for you. I thought that was really interesting because that is kind of, you know, what that is the the pattern that is occurring in a C-section birth. Again, this is not making anything wrong. This is just something that can show up. And it doesn't necessarily mean that if you're exhibiting these traits, um, that it has to be because of the C-section. It's just one thing that has been named and identified. So I actually learned this from a breathwork facilitator uh, last year. She sent me a list and it details out kind of the different personality profiles of the different types of birth. I thought that was really neat. That's really, really neat. Yeah, really neat. I think I think every time I talk to you, I just learn something so fascinating. Um, and the next thing after that was, I mean, being stuck in the birth canal, talk about trauma. And it's no no right or wrong. It's no one's fault. It's just things that that happen. And so that alone is extremely traumatic. I think that kind of goes along with the C-section. Do you have any other things to add to that? Because obviously, I mean, that's a huge. Just in the, in, on the topic of birth, um, I think that we in the Western world have made birth traumatic 
in general. It's not just about the C-section rate. Um, you know, it's also the poking and the prodding and the weighing and the, you know, the gooping and <laughs> all of the things that are happening just immediately. It's an immediate onslaught the minute that you enter the world. And it's just so foreign and antithetical to what birth would have been like naturally before. And I'm not saying that we can't value these interventions. I think that some of the life-saving interventions have a place. Um, and I don't want to get too much into that, but just the way that people are entering the world, we are essentially starting off on <laughs> such shaky ground, you know, instead of being born into your mother's arms and receiving skin to skin, you're, you know, you're in a gloved hand having your skin punctured, which is a very primal, um, a very primal injury that your body is physiologically designed to be against. <laughs> you are designed to be against being poked and punctured. It's just not natural. And again, there's a time and a place, but you know, maybe your first 30 seconds in the world isn't that time and place. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. We can all agree on that. Definitely. And I, I think it's kind of along the lines of, you know, the instantaneous you're out of the womb. And yes, there are, I think there are certain medical things that are needed for a child. Um, won't get into specifics. I definitely think there are, but it's, it kind of goes along the same line of just bam, bam, bam. You need this right out of the womb. And so right after all of kind of the trauma of just being birthed, it's okay. Now you need this shot and that shot and, and et cetera. And it just becomes a slippery slope that, that young. I mean, you're literally just out of your mother's womb. I think on some level also, there is a messaging that like, you're not born perfect. There's something wrong with you immediately. Like you just got here and you need help. Exactly. Exactly. Definitely. And I think the Western system, I mean, I epidurals are amazing for so many people, but just going back and really looking at birth history, I mean, water, um, tubs of water, so to say, and, and blown up bathtubs are going back really how it was done. And so no shame in, in giving birth in a hospital and so many, so many times it's needed, but it's interesting to just look back and realize wait, this is how initially it started, um, was just in water and women were able to just do that in a very natural process. So I think, yeah, going back to the gloves and just the poking and the prodding, it's, it's super interesting. Um, do you want to kind of go into the next, so to say traumatic event? (laughs) We've gone so deep on just the birth. (laughs) I'm like, I'm 31. (laughs) We're going to be here all day. (laughs) (laughs) so So, the next big kind of thing that happened was a bit of an injury yeah so I again allegedly had meningitis I say allegedly because I wasn't there and I've tried to access medical records but you know this was 30 years ago so um and you know you know how it is especially in the 90s you go to the doctor and whether they can identify something or not you know antibiotics are kind of like the go to i think that's probably still pretty common today i don't know i, I try not to go <laughs> but um the just the like the quick um it's like a knee jerk reaction to go towards the antibiotics you know and again can be helpful in some situations but i can't 
that's why I say allegedly because I, I wasn't there and I don't have the records, but I had meningitis and they admitted me for four days. And I was, um, I had at least two, my mom says she knows of two spinal taps that I, um, went under. Um, I, well, they did not put me under, but I was, I was poked. Um, and then they also took urine samples via catheter. And for a one month old baby, that is quite traumatic. You know, even just being separated from your mother in a hospital setting can be traumatic, even if nothing painful happens to you, because at that age, you just, all you know, is the safety and comfort of your caregiver. So, um, I think that these early insults, especially can just wire us to respond and react and in a certain way later on through our life, almost like a blueprint kind of. And it's pretty common, especially for these early insults, because you're so young, your nervous system doesn't have a way of coping with it. Um, it doesn't take much to just send it into overwhelm and then end up collapsing. Problem is that energy that was there when you are being prodded or poked or you know, maybe it's not a medical thing. Maybe it's some other kind of assault, but, um, that fight flight energy doesn't just go away. You built up all that energy, but it became too much and you collapsed in on yourself. So it gets sort of stuck there. Samantha, I can't help but wonder. So you're, you know, you're born, you're one month old and you have this meningitis case that you are skeptical of. You had two, two spinal taps. Were any of them indicative of anything or were they inconclusive and they just assumed you had meningitis? I don't know. They, I, my mom said that they, they told her I had bacterial meningitis and they did administer antibiotics. So I can't help but wonder, so many people we talk to, especially in the tick-borne illness community, the Lyme community, uh, get things passed on to them from birth. We now know, and it's it's accepted by the CDC, and it's now mainstream that congenital tick-borne illnesses is a valid and real condition, like many other things that you can catch from your mother at birth, right? So do you think that possibly there was something that you were born with that presented either bacterial or viral when you were one month old, and you weren't treated properly with whatever antibiotic you were given for whatever duration, which led to issues down the road with your health? I honestly don't want to comment one way or the other. I'm not sure. I just, because I don't have the medical records and I don't have enough of a clear picture and I'm only going off of what my mother can remember. Um, I suppose it's not outside the realm of possibility. You know, my, my history from then on out was fraught with a lot of antibiotics. <laughs> you know, I had this uh, recurring throat infection that I would get like every year almost. And Interestingly, I was very resistant to going to the doctor or taking medication like my whole life, probably because of those early experiences. But yeah, I did um, have some recurring infections. I had like a skin infection that I would get, which I think they call perioral dermatitis, but it was like this really red, like bumpy rash that I would get around my nose. Um, and it was just like, it just never um, went went away. Like it would go away and then it would come back and then it would go away and then it would come back. So lots of skin stuff, throat stuff. Um, but other than that, like I appeared to be like a healthy, normal kid, you know, I was a dancer. I started dancing at the age of five. So I was pretty active. Um, 
yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I would have been described as a sick kid by any means. So walk us through, as you started to grow up, you mentioned you had a lot of skin and throat infections, right? So you were healthy, but you were getting sick often and more than your peers and your fellow students, right? So was there ever any concern or thought about, well, why is Samantha getting sick so often? This is not normal, right? Or did you think that you were a sickly child? I don't really think I was a sickly child. And I wouldn't say that I was like sick more often than my peers. Um, I don't really recall having the flu more than like once in my life. Uh, I yeah, it's just mostly those throat infections that would happen. And it was interesting because they would always, they would test me for strep every time. It was never, it was never strep supposedly. So interesting, but not, um, not really anything that we were super concerned with because I, in all other respects, I seem to be healthy. Medically speaking, I mean, we know just over time, the accumulation, especially at that age of antibiotic use, um, the gut brain connection, I mean, just very simply putting it, it, you know, it just, it does a number, especially at that age. Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, I definitely think that, I mean, that mixed with, you know, terrain theory kind of, kind of thing is just kind of the, the perfect storm. So to say, what are your thoughts on maybe all of this accumulating, you know, based on the terrain growing up? and a, you know, a standard American diet, what do you, how do you think that contributed to just kind of the, the stacking of the, not the explode, I won't call it, but, but the, the, the The real showing exactly the perfect storm, the really, the showing of symptoms. Yeah. I think I now, from what I've learned in my own journey and what I have seen with other people, what other people have told me about their stories. I think it's pretty rare for there to be like one thing, um, unless it was just like a really massive insult, like usually coupled with a shock trauma. Um, for most people, it does seem to be sort of a perfect storm and there is a lead up looking back. It's just, you can't see it until after the fact, because we're not trained to, to see things in that manner. And we are trained to push through and just keep going and just keep, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and keep trucking on, you know? <laughs> so it's just a different, um, it's a different way of looking at things. And you're sort of forced to see through that lens after the fact. So for me, um, you know, like I said, you've got the birth trauma and you've got an early medical experience, which in my opinion, like really just sets your nervous system up for operating in a certain manner, mainly um, just keeping at bay a lot of sympathetic energy that has been stored in the system for a long time. um, And a pattern of like imploding on yourself. (laughs) And I say that, um, I don't know, like, I think people who struggle with like inner critic or anger itself and self-loathing, like they're probably familiar with that energy of like things being too overwhelming and feeling like too much. And then you sort of like shame spiral. Um, And for me, it always ended in like, this is too much. I just don't want to do this anymore, which I feel is at least for me was a very young part. That's a very young place speaking that says, I'm too overwhelmed. I'm just ready to be done. <laughs> um, and you can imagine that that is probably how you would feel as an infant if you're being assaulted and you have no concept of time and no way of knowing that this will come to an end. So it's either you're hopeless or you're safe. 
there is no like, oh, I'm hopeless now, but things could get better because you don't have a concept of that. So, um, wow, I just went on a total tangent there, but, <laughs> but just that setup in the nervous system and then the, you know, antibiotics weakening the physical system and then, um, you know, drinking in high school and in college, you know, obviously we know the effects of like long-term alcohol use especially on the liver, which is important for detoxification. Um, and just the, I guess, standard American diet, you know, I try to eat healthy in college, but that was like the, that version of me eating healthy was like whole wheat pasta and like <laughs> a chicken breast and, um, lots of broccoli and, you know, I'm only going to drink like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, instead of every day of the week. I'm only going to eat Wednesday, Wendy's on the weekends. <laughs> that was me being healthy. And you know what? Good for me. I at least tried. I gave it my best. I, I was giving it a good effort, but I didn't know, you know, I didn't know any better. I didn't have any context for that. So that leading up to like, just that busy, busy, busy lifestyle, which, you know, that really, I lived my whole life. I, I said, I would say to people, like, I don't know how to relax. Like, I just, I love to be busy. I'm always on the go. So I was, you know, a dancer. And then in high school and college, I was like competing with the dance team. And in college, I was working like three jobs at a time at one point and going to school full time and um, you know, on the dance team, which had practices like three times a week and workouts twice a week. And for some reason, I felt like I needed to work out even harder. <laughs> so I would go for like two a days. Sometimes um, I would run like four or five miles, like several times a week. Um, it was an escape for me, for sure. There was a lot of like toxicity relationally in my life at that time. So it was like, just run to like get out of my, my head a little bit. But at the same time, I look back and I'm like, yeah, but I wasn't really getting on into my body either. I was getting out of my head. I wasn't getting into my body. I was just like dissociating into nowhere to just disconnect from it all, which isn't really a healthy way to engage with exercising your body. <laughs> so that was the perfect storm. I'll pause there right before we get to the vaccine. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, Uh -oh. I think we're having some technical difficulties here. Margo cut out her audio for a second. So I'll jump in while Margo is looking at her audio. So Samantha, we hear this in almost well, pretty much every podcast we do, this crash, right? The perfect storm that you were just referring to. So it sounds like you hinted at a vaccine injury. And I didn't even know this was a thing until we interviewed one of our first guests, Michaela Voucher, who got the HPV vaccine when she was a young child. And that triggered in her case, her dormant Lyme disease and made her extremely unwell. And it took her many, many years to recover from that using a variety of, of treatment modalities. So what was this like for you? Was this a similar experience where you got a you know childhood vaccine that's a normal quote unquote vaccine and then it triggered illness in you? Yeah, so I mean, looking back now knowing what I know, I'm like, I'm sure the the onslaught of vaccination played a role in my perfect storm as well, because, you know, a lot of them contain mercury and aluminum. Well, not anymore. The mercury is no longer used, but it was in the early nineties. So the mercury, the aluminum, um, and then you have the adjuvants that are designed to produce the immune response that are coupled with 
all sorts of contaminants and food particles. And, um, you know, there are independent researchers that have looked inside the vaccines and found all sorts of viral and bacterial components and just stuff that isn't supposed to be there. That is in fact there wreaking havoc in the system. So I definitely think that played a role. Um, the, I was also a military child. So every time you went into the doctor, it was like, they were, they were like, Oh, looks like you're out of date on this. And you're out of date on that. They just love to pincushion people. So, um, yeah, I was 21. I came back from, uh, college. I, well, I was out, um, working at a lake, working at a bar and I came home for the summer, um, just for a doctor's appointment. And I can't remember what I was originally there for, but they, they told me, Hey, you're out of date on Tdap and Hep A. And I was like, okay, you know, didn't think anything of it. Cause I've been getting them my whole life and never connected any dots. Now going back, I can look, I do have some of my medical records where I can see like, Oh, I started struggling with dizziness and like a little bit of, seems like that's a neurological thing that occurred shortly after a vaccine, but um, so I got those uh, boosters, I guess, <laughs> booster vaccines. And it was within like nine days, I think I was on a run, which I was like an avid runner at the time. So this was like no big deal. I was going on a short run, which meant I was going for like two or three miles. <laughs> and I get out there and I'm luckily I was with someone, but I started experiencing neurological symptoms, vision and balance. And I immediately started having my first panic attack ever. And then I went to the ER and they were like, oh, you're just dehydrated. You should feel better in the next 24 hours. Well, I guess I was dehydrated for 10 years because <laughs> those symptoms stayed with me. And I went to, you know, the primary care provider when I got home and I saw specialists and no one could, could pinpoint what was going on, but the, the vaccine was definitely a, a perfect storm for me. So Samantha, it sounds like to me that your experience is very similar to mine, where my symptoms began after, for me, it was, it wasn't a vaccine. It was a dental procedure, but it, it began when I was exercising. In fact, when I was running and I was a long distance runner as well. And when I'd be running, I would, I randomly started to lose my vision and faint and they couldn't figure out what was going on. And my health continued to decline. So for you, you had a similar experience, but I don't, I just don't think that our medical community, especially here in America is equipped to deal with non-acute illnesses, non -ill, you know, Ill illnesses that aren't just, Hey, here's some drugs. You'll get better in a few weeks or it's viral. Let it sit and you'll get better. We don't know how to handle that. So as your health continued to decline, you were being told, hey, look, you're dehydrated. I mean, I had a seizure, woke up in the hospital and I was told, Matt, you're just dehydrated. That's why you had a seizure, go home. And it kept, I kept having seizures and seizures, right? So any excuse in the book to pass the buck on to somebody else, walk us through how many doctors you saw. So you ended up, you said, you know, to primary care doctors, who else did you see and what were they saying? Yeah, I went to a primary care doctor and they said, oh, you have vertigo, which like vertigo is literally just the medical term for dizziness. So I was like, cool. Thank you. I told you that when I came in, I just used the word dizzy, you know, and off balance. But Here's my money. Thanks for nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Luckily it's military insurance. So it was free for me, but <laughs> I went in and she said I had vertigo and she gave me like a, um, whatever the anti-nausea, like one like of the Dramamine kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Something like Dramamine. And, um, I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to take this because I know that I'm not, 
I'm not dizzy or nauseous because of motion sickness. So I'm not going to take this because that doesn't make sense. Um, that's a very common theme with me. I've been prescribed drugs so many times that I just never took. Um, <laughs> I don't know that it's just, uh, they're, I don't know. I just intuitively, I knew that it was never root cause medicine. Like I knew that they were never getting the root cause. So I was like, why would I take this? Even if it gives me like symptom alleviation, like I, it just doesn't make sense for me. And that, again, that's my journey. That was my choice. I'm not discounting someone else who makes a different one, but, and so, that but was, Samantha, you, don't, you don't have to qualify that because I mean, look, all of our experiences are different, right? So I agree with you in that, in that, in, in that assessment, because all the antibiotics you were given as a child, I believe, probably masked an underlying condition, and they were just sort of band-aiding things, right? And they were also causing probably parallel conditions, but they were masking possibly things that were going on that you would have found earlier if you weren't masking them or band-aiding them, right? And that, I think that's what you're articulating, and I think that's an important lesson for people that are going through a you know a chronic illness journey or even healthy people to to know that masking of symptoms and band-aiding is going to lead up to a a crisis at some point in their lives, right? Right. Right. And it tends to happen. Like, I don't know, for me, I I've seen that it either happens like right in the midst of when everything's the absolute most crazy or right when you slow down, like the first time you take a beat, <laughs> I find that really interesting. But the, the, the PCP was the first stop, obviously, because that's, that's most people's first stop, right? They, they tell you after the ER, they usually tell you to follow up with your PCP. And then I um, got a referral to an ENT, an ear, nose, and throat specialist, and they did all of the ear, eye, the ear, nose, throat testing, and, you know, they put me in a little room, make sure that I could hear, and, and you know, looked in my ears and looked at my throat, just, you know, the basic stuff, um, and they said that there was nothing wrong with me, everything was coming out normal. Um, eventually, I ended up going to a neurologist, and they had me do, like, you know, the typical gate test, they had the little thing that they, the little, uh, it's just like a little spiky wheel that they run down your fingers. Um, there's little like hand related neurological tests. I'm sure some people listening have done these basic tests as well. Samantha, so I've done the ENT test and I've done the neurological test. Everything you're describing, I'm actually picturing myself sitting in the, you know, neurologist or the ENT. I, many people listening to this podcast can relate to exactly what you're describing. This is par for the course when it comes to chronic Lyme disease. So I just felt so like, I just, I left that neurologist appointment. I was like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. Like I just went in here for them to run a spiky wheel down my finger and watch me walk. And they said, everything's fine. And then she sees this. Um, I have a, I don't know if you can, you guys can see it cause we're on video, but it's a, a weird, like freckle birthmark on the left side of my neck that kind of goes over the left side of my chest. And she said, well, sometimes when there's this birthmark, um, it can be indicative of like an underlying neurological disorder, but we'll have to send you to a dermatologist. <laughs> so I was like, okay. Wow. And I remember like looking this up in the parking lot and being like, I honestly just kind of hope that I have it because at this point, I'm just so tired of people telling me that everything's fine and nothing is wrong with me. And I don't have a way forward, you know, and I'm sure this is very relatable. You want a diagnosis in the beginning because you want to just know and be validated that yes, something is going on. And once you have a name, then it sort of gives you like, uh, it narrows it down. So you have at least a path to look to like, okay, I'm going to Google this and I look into everything related to this diagnosis instead of just kind of 
I have a mysterious chronic illness that no one can name, you know? But Samantha, I have to ask because this happened very shortly after getting your two booster vaccines. Were you or any of your doctors connecting the dots between the vaccination and the sudden chronic illness? No. And I, I wish that I had, but you know, then I wouldn't have the story that I have now. It was actually the first, the first, um, doctor that validated me in any way was when I went to what was called the mid America balance Institute balance Institute. Sorry. (laughs) I just stumbled over that a little bit, but, um, we did like a four hour evaluation and it seemed very thorough and I was really impressed. They were actually doing like testing that seemed to be a little bit deeper instead of just watching me walk. I felt like they, they might know a little bit more of what they were talking about. I felt like they could see that there was a problem. At least they could say, okay, yes. Like according to these tests, you know, you have the, these balance issues and they sent me to do, um, oh gosh, vestibular therapy basically. And I did that twice a week for weeks and never saw any change whatsoever. And then fast forward, I mean, I eventually just sort of like, I kind of just like gave up on finding answers for a while. I was still drinking a lot. I was using alcohol as a coping mechanism because it made me feel like the symptoms were masked. Like when you're drunk, you're, you're dizzy and your vision is weird. Cause it's supposed to be that way. Cause you're drunk. <laughs> So I kind of was using that as a way to mask the symptoms or to make it seem like they were okay, if that makes sense. But eventually the hangovers were just, they were monstrous. I mean, terrible. I would drink like two beers and I'd be hungover for like, you know, 24 hours plus. And it was splitting headaches. I mean, horrible. I was, my anxiety was so intense. I was still having panic attacks. I was really depressed. I was ready to give up. And then I actually saw a hypnotherapist because I was- So wait, I'm sorry to interrupt, Samantha. So you, you, were you a very Western person before this? Meaning were you a traditional Western person that gradually went to more alternative things? Or, you know, give us a context because, you know, a hypnotherapist takes a big commitment to jump that far over to alternative medicine, right? I was generally like Western, but- Honestly, I was really just resistant to going to the doctor and taking medication, which I think was a remnant of early medical trauma and not really any sort of um, higher wisdom on my part. And I mean, maybe like deeper wisdom that I'm just unconsciously aware of, but I just- But also desperate, right? I mean, you, you, yeah. nobody was helping you. You were getting worse. Nobody could validate anything you were going through and you wanted, you wanted to feel better, right? So part of it was well, probably desperation too. Up at the hypnotherapist because I was afraid of flying and I wanted to find a way to work with that fear so that I could make a trip. So I went to the hypnotherapist for something kind of unrelated to the health, but she, we did talk about it at the end of my session. And she was like, Hey, there's this doctor. He works with people for like thyroid and hormone stuff. I really feel like maybe there's some hormonal stuff at play for you. Um, she gave me his information. I sought him out. And like, I mean, he was, he was getting me at my rock bottom. I was like, I'm desperate, you know? And he made me feel like there was hope. Like that was the first doctor that I saw that was like, yes, I see these problems and here's the plan. Like, here's what I can do for you. It'll take this long. It's this much money. Like just kind of laid it all out. 
And so I was just like immediately on board. And that was my first experience. He's actually a functional neurologist. He's a chiropractor. Um, he did like, um, some muscle testing. He did the, he did some of the vestibular therapy as well. He, you know, worked with nutrition and supplements and in hindsight, it wasn't for me, but I, it was the, my first inter introduction to that world. Margo's going to jump in shortly, but I have to tell you how much I love that a hypnotherapist is the one who listened to you more than anybody prior to that and pointed you in the right direction to a functional functional neurologist who actually got you on the right path, right? Because so many people that are suffering with chronic illness become desperate because nobody can help them or believe them or validate them. And then it's generally somebody that we would never think to go to see when we're healthy that points us in the right direction or helps us down the right path to finally get some relief and get to the root cause, right? Because again, we keep talking about root cause medicine. And I think that's an important note. And I want to just tease here before Margo jumps in with the next question. I know Margo's got her, her audio back working, but you talked about fear with the hypnotherapist. And it just happened to be that the hypnotherapist referred you out to this hormone specialist, a functional neurologist. But you're now a big advocate of this term fear porn I saw on your social media. And I think that's a really important topic. We're going to get to you a little bit later on when it comes to the nervous system and this fear porn topic, because it's something that I think describes it so well that can hold us back in our healing journeys and in many cases make us even sicker, right? So I just want to leave that there as a teaser for later and let Margo jump in and, and hopefully Margo can, can speak now. Margo, are you with us? Yeah, I think so. All right. Um, so I just wanted to jump back because I think a huge, huge portion, especially I think men and women in the chronic illness community, but definitely women, there's this perfectionist, there's this type A, I cannot rest, I have to get it done, I have to do, 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 do. And just backtracking a bit, you mentioned, um, you know, you literally just didn't know how to rest. It was go, go, go. And I think as I've healed and as I've learned and as I've, I've worked with a lot of clients, I see that as soon as they're able to rest, there's almost more rest that's then required because the adrenaline is subsiding and you, you know, you get eight hours of sleep, so to say, for an example, and then you're like, wait, I could sleep another five hours because the system is finally, you know, relaxing. And this, this is over time. This is definitely not an, an overnight thing. But I'd love for you to talk just for a minute, if you're comfortable, about just the go, go, go. Because I think eventually that's going to tie into the nervous system work that you've done and you're doing. But I think that the amount of, well, it should happen overnight is such an interesting concept because we think about, well, you've been going for you know, almost 30 years, let's let's say. And so just like if you were to have a broken bone, so to say, that's not going to heal overnight. That's a trauma. And we don't logically expect a broken bone to heal overnight. But we expect that after we've been go, 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 that once we get a good night of sleep the next day, it's back in action. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, I observe and I, I notice personally that that's kind of the opposite. So I'd love for you to just talk about maybe the the go, go, go portion and, and really that, I mean, that's, it's so ingrained in our society to be that way. Um, and this kind of gets into like, I could get into like the masculine feminine polarity that I think we are losing in society. I think, you know, men are being encouraged to be more feminine and not in, not, um, not in a way that's balanced. And then women are sort of like picking up the more masculine traits to balance that. And, um, you know, corporate jobs and just this sort of like hustle culture. And 
it's from birth, you know, it starts in the very beginning. It starts, um, especially in the school system, you know, no breaks, like you get like one recess and you have to scarf your food down in 10 minutes, you know, like that's, that's not normal. That's not healthy. That's not, um, that's not setting people up to know their own boundaries and to know when to, t- to take a, to rest, to take a rest and to just slow down. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of masculine, a masculinization of women. I see the perfectionist tendencies in women a lot. This is also like, you know, trauma related. I, I, I hesitate to use the word trauma because I feel like people hear the word trauma and they think, oh, I had to like be in a war-torn country or be assaulted or be like physically abused to be traumatized. But chronic stress is trauma. Um, like chronic overworking is trauma. Like being, um, you know, being in a long line of generational trauma is still trauma, you know? And it really is just nervous system, like overwhelm and stored survival stress in your body. Uh, so I just wanted to clarify that because I think the word trauma can be a little bit, uh, a little bit muddy for some people. But yeah, I think it's just, it's so ingrained in us from the very beginning, especially in the school system. And then we get out into the real world and we're expected to know how to set boundaries and know our own limits in our body. You know, even think about the way that a lot of us were um, told you have to finish all the food on your plate. Okay, what if you're not hungry? (laughs) What if you're done eating? What if you're full? You know, but we have been trained to, um, ignore our body's cues. Oh, you have to raise your hand to go to the bathroom. Oh, you have to hold it and wait until after class. Like it's just unnatural to force your body into these boxes, into these limitations, you know? And yeah, I, I could go on forever about this. (laughs) I love that you mentioned, can I go to the bathroom? Because I'm actually, I'm just writing a few little notes as you talk, because literally there's so much gold in just the little nuggets that you're saying. And when you said about the school, before you said anything, you said the school system, it's just ingrained in us. And the first thing I wrote was, you know, it's so fascinating to me that we have to say, hi, teacher, can I go to the bathroom? Okay, well, if you're raising your hand at that age to go to the bathroom, you have to go to the bathroom. Why why are we asking for for permission? And then when they say, you know, for example, it's in 15 minutes once we're done. Well, my body says that I need to go to the bathroom now. Yeah. There's no, that's not, that's not an ability, you know, at at eight years old in, in school to be like, well, my body says that I need to go to the bathroom. This is a sign. And it's just, in my opinion, it's just really starting that conditioning of not listening to the body at, the, at that age. I mean, the fact that we have to, we have to ask to, to do a bodily function. Think about how many women do that now. Like, and, and men, obviously everybody we're, we're cooking or we're sitting at our desk, finishing a project. And we know that we have to pee, but we hold it for like an hour. And then you're like, oh yeah, I have to pee. And you get up and now you've been ignoring your body symptoms for like an hour. And this is something that, uh, one of my mentors, Irene Lyon, I, I call her my mentor. Cause I learned from her every day. I've taken all of her courses and she's, you know, kind of sparked my nervous system healing journey, but she talks about following the body's impulses. Like that's one of the best ways to start this nervous system work is just to start cluing into the body's needs, whether that literally just means I'm going to listen when my body says that I have to use the restroom and I'm going to actually stop what I'm doing and get up and go to the restroom. Like just those simple acts can tell your body on a, on a physiological level that you are listening now. 
Yes, and I know there's a, a book that a lot of a lot of people, and I'm assuming a lot of people on this podcast listen to. I think it's called "The Body Keeps the Score." But to me, more importantly, it's it's the the body speaks, and whether we choose or whether we choose to uncondition how how to really listen to that, because I think it's a, there's a lot of conditioning to not listen to that. But I think it goes back to the the conditioning of can we uncondition to listen to to listen to ourselves because that's a very primal thing to do. I mean, it's a very primal thing to need to use the restroom, <laughs> but you know, it's starting at this very young age of priming the brain to, can I use the bathroom? You know, now there's this set period of from 12 to 1225, we, we have lunch in school. And so only at those times, can you eat? Well, I personally, as a child, was never much of a, a lunch person at 1230. I was more of like a 130, but that was not acceptable because we are in this, you know, every every 30 minutes or every whatever, whatever school system you're a part of, this is how it works. And I, it's funny because I went to a really kind of holistic type of school, but even, even there it was, you know, we do things at this time, this way, and it just, it starts that conditioning young and then talk about, you know, the unconditioning and how long that, you know, that takes really and coming back to, to ourselves. Um, There's another book that I would recommend as well. It's called When the Body Says No. And I feel like that one is probably really, um, really applies to people who have struggled with chronic illness or reach that sort of like perfect storm moment. Yes. And I mean, what a brilliant name for a book, because how many times does the body literally say no? I think personally, just speaking for me, it had to take me getting bed bound for years to really realize, you know, the body is saying no in so many aspects. But even now that I'm much weller, it's, it's a matter of saying, you know, this might sound amazing to go physically participate in. But as soon as I hear it, if it's not a full heck yes, so to say, in the body, then it's a no. And that 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 might be logically very appealing to my brain to say, yeah, but if the body is saying no, that's the first priority is to really listen to, to the body. Yeah. And I think in some cases, you know, there are certain things that happen where we do have to like push on, but in, in terms of healing in that healing phase, I think it's really important to almost go to the extreme in honoring your limits as much as possible for me, like I had to, we moved, we just moved to the country like two months ago or a month ago. And I did not want to make this move. I knew that it was going to be stressful. I knew that it was going to take a toll on me physically to just the emotional like planning and preparation and anticipatory anxiety of moving was just a lot for me but we didn't really have an option, you know, financially, this was a really good move for us. And I knew that long-term it would be good for me. So I just also want to put that out there that there are some times where you do sort of have to um, take an L in some ways to get a, to get a win somewhere else, but in ways where it is possible um, to go to the extreme to protect your limits during a healing phase, I do think it's really important. Like, you know, saying no more, more often than you might like, and just telling yourself like, this is temporary, you know, this is temporary that I'm saying no all the time. It won't always be like this, but the more that you override and say yes, when you want to say no, like the longer it's going to take. 
Exactly, exactly. And I think it's really about, you know, being able to, especially in the chronic illness community, it's so much of the survival mechanisms for so long, because you know, when, when you're, when you're bed bound, when you can't do, when you can't do anything for yourself, when you can't do the bare necessities of feed yourself, which is a lot of, you know, this community, it really becomes a survival, you know, a stress survivor, a survival response, if you will. Um, and I think being able to then, you know, really use discernment, I say, if, if no one learns anything else through illness, it's, it's discernment, you know, and, and regulation. And I think regulation often has this kind of negative connotation, but it's being able to regulate more than we can't regulate, you know, everyone around us. And so if we can regulate some form of ourself through through the nervous system and not not control not in a controlling way, but just being able to really regulate the system, it makes the the outputs from from society, I think, a lot easier to take in. Yeah, and I think the the regulation piece, like a lot of a lot of times when you hear regulation, it it can for some people they think it means like I just have to be chill all the time and like you know happy all the time or at least contented or neutral all the time. You know, like some enlightened monk. It's just that's regulation means that you're able to go with the ebbs and flows of life in a way that is smooth and um, resilient. You know, it's not never feeling angry or never feeling sad or never feeling overwhelmed. It's being able to feel that and not disconnect from it. And then being able to have that sort of bounce back effect, you know, sitting, I was sitting outside just a few days ago and I was literally on Instagram posting a story. Oh my gosh, I love it here so much. It's so calm and peaceful. <laughs> and in this car, like I had just heard the neighbor, like maybe a hundred yards. We don't have a neighbor directly across, but like a hundred yards, we have a neighbor down the street. And I heard him like on the phone and it sounded like a lot of drama. And there was a lot of like emotional agitation there. And then I heard this car just like careening down the road, super loud, which was a shock to me because we moved out of the suburbs. I don't have to hear that anymore. And usually you hear like one car every 15 minutes out here. So to hear this guy just driving like a bat out of hell, <laughs> he comes to a screeching halt, like a screeching halt right past my house. And my nervous system was just like, alert, 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 alert. Like something is wrong. And I grabbed my, my phone and literally ran inside the house and my whole body, like my arms and my legs were trembling. Um, and I, you know, I've done enough of this work now that I can sort of like walk myself through it. And I just kept telling myself, this is a normal response. This is a normal response. Your context clues were drama, anger, and loud screeching car coming to a halt right in front of your house. You know, that that warrants a little bit of alarm. Right. And so, but I came down from it and then the rest of my night was fine and I fell asleep with ease and it was no problem. That is regulation. So it's not never having things that interrupt you or startle you or upset you. It's being able to not disconnect from it. Like I was feeling it. I was like, okay, my head, my, my hands are shaky. My legs are trembling. Like my heart is racing and I was feeling it. And that also requires capacity it for a lot of people they don't have the capacity to do that yet so it does take time and the first thing to do is not to immediately go into the body and feel all of these deep somatic 
like feelings and sensations that are overwhelming, the first thing to do is actually to look for safety. That's what builds your capacity. Yes, yes, I love that. And I love just talking about the spectrum of emotions and being able to feel. I think there's this constant, especially for women, I will say there's this constant, you know, smile, everything is fine, everything is good. And if you say, hey, I'm feeling angry, typically to another person that is, oh my gosh, A, that makes that makes me uncomfortable and not not me, <laughs> me as a person, but someone else uncomfortable and really retraining that of, well, that's not necessarily my, my issue. If, if that makes you uncomfortable, I'm allowed to feel the full spectrum of emotions. And I also am, you know, learning and have the capacity to feel all of those. I think well, our society is phobic of of anger. Yeah, phobic. We are grief phobic. Yes. We do not want to see or feel these things. You know, I think that's why maybe like movies are so like people love shows and movies because it's their way of feeling without actually feeling what's in their like. You know? Do you know what I mean? Like exactly. they're exactly. No, I could not agree more. Surrogate for feeling. That's why. The crime podcast and the horror genre is so popular also because everyone is so adrenalized. They're addicted to stress hormones and they're seeking out ways to feel those stress hormones. This is why people are in toxic relationships. This is why people are go, 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 because we are chemically addicted. And that's not a, you're addicted. You should get unaddicted. You know, <laughs> this is something that we, many of us have been trained into, whether that's like physiologically or emotionally from like trauma patterning in our family structure or generationally or whatever. So the, the grief and the anger are the two big ones that it seems like people just don't want to acknowledge them. Um, and it's different for men and women, but I think women, women are especially not supposed to be angry. And it's typically accompanied if you do act like an angry woman, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or if you are an angry woman, if you express anger, it's sort of, there's this like hysteria um, and like, oh, are you on your period, you know, <laughs> kind of reaction. And, you know, and for men also, their anger is pathologized as, oh, are you, you're a toxic man. Like you're, that's your toxic masculinity, you know, um, men and women are both allowed to be angry. Obviously we're, we're talking about like healthy aggression and not, um, you know, violent aggression towards other people, but aggression is a normal response when your boundaries have been crossed as an example. So, um, you know, and the grief, the grief is a hard one for people to acknowledge as well. And I think because collectively we have a lot to grieve over (laughs) into your own well of grief. There's almost like a, it's almost like a portal or an access point to deeper wells of grief in society at large. Um, like I've noticed that as I've been doing my own work and I find and feel into grief around like my own past, I just, I start to think, oh my gosh, like I feel the weight of how the suffering of everyone else, because if I'm feeling it from this, you know, experience in the past, it looks very similar to what other people are going through. Like the birth trauma, for instance, I'm saying, oh my gosh, like this was so hard for me and I have grief over it. And then I'm like, that's the experience of like 90% of people in America probably. So 
it's just, you know, it can be a lot, it can be really overwhelming. And again, if we don't have a connection with the safety in our environment and we don't know how to find safety in our bodies and we haven't built capacity to hold those feelings, it is too much. Exactly. I I couldn't agree more. It's so funny. We're having this conversation at this time because I just had a conversation yesterday about the word hysterical and about, you know, the kind of the feelings that come up when women are angry, so to say, and it's, it's so vastly different, typically expressed than men, but it's also interesting, the whole connotation and being okay and also being really grateful to feel is something I think that a lot of the chronic illness community is not able to do because it's that survival, you know, that, that fight, flight, freeze, and just really coming back to the body and being able and, you know, whatever emotion it may be, whether it's sadness, whether it's, you know, anger, whatever, but just being grateful to be able to feel and feel that spectrum and then also have the capacity to feel. Um, I, I feel like is just a really, really big gift. I would love to talk to you about, I know, and I, I forgot the name, but I, um, I kind of was in your, your journey a little bit when you were at the, the Balance Institute doing, mm-hmm. doing those types of tests and stuff. And I know you said that that didn't quite make a ton of progress and um, you kind of moved on from there. But I'd love to talk if you are open to it about your experience there with with POTS especially and with, and these are just names again, I'm just, you know, naming a a category of symptoms, but I know that a lot of people struggle with POTS in this community. Um, And I know they did quite a bit of work there with that. So if you, if you'd like to talk, tackle and and talk a little bit about that, I think it'd be interesting. Yeah. I want to recap really quick because we did like, we started getting into the timeline then we sort of bounced away. And I just, just because I know it can be hard to follow. I do want to kind of go back. So PCP, ENT, Balance Institute. And then I sort of gave up for a while, reached a rock bottom, went to the hypnotherapist. She directs me to the holistic functional chiropractor who has like a functional neurology certification as, as well. Um, and then I actually ended up working with another health coach. Um, so with, with the holistic chiropractor and with this health coach, I was doing a lot of, um, cleanses. I did candida cleanse. I did a parasite cleanse. I did a heavy metal cleanse. Um, unfortunately throughout this time, I don't feel that there was enough emphasis or even really any emphasis on mineral depletion that can occur with these sort of protocols, Um, So looking back, I wish that I would have taken a more serious focus toward that um, and done more of the mineral support while I was cleansing. Um, I actually wish I would have had more nervous system resources before I started cleansing, but I know for some people, they are in such, um, they are in a more emergent state in terms of getting some of those offenders out of the body. And that is something that needs to occur. Sometimes it needs to occur simultaneously where you're doing like the physical cleansing and then you're also doing the nervous system work. But um, yeah, so I did a lot of the cleansing. And then in 2020, that's when I landed at, um, what is the name? Neurologic Wellness Institute in Chicago. And I did like a brain camp week long thing. And by this time, you know, I had, I had been struggling with POTS. They, they said that I was like borderline in terms of the diagnosis, but 
and had the symptoms. Um, and then, you know, still the neurological symptoms were still there. I was having headaches, tension headaches pretty often. Sometimes they would progress into full-blown migraines. And I worked with them for a whole week. And again, I just, you know, I saw like a little bit of change, but it wasn't enough to be like, it wasn't sustaining change, if that makes sense. And I came back and just everything just kept spiraling. And keep in mind, I'm working full-time in a corporate job for 50 hours a week or 45 hours a week. <laughs> so can't. a successful position with a lot of like office drama and um, just, it's just unnatural to me. <laughs> I think for most women, it's probably unnatural to be in an environment like that. You know, if you're, if you're healthy and you're thriving and you're doing great and you're loving it, more power to you, that's wonderful. But I think for most women, it's probably not their bag. Um, Completely. You know, really yeah. see change with the pot stuff. I did come back and started working with a different functional neurologist. Um, and during that time, I made the most improvement with, you know, cause I had done the vestibular therapy I had done the work with the first functional neurologist. I went to the Neurologic Wellness Institute. And now here I am basically at my fourth like functional neurology stop. And I did make some progress under his care, but I had started the nervous system work. And I think that the two together, like Kathy Kane, um, she's a somatic um, practitioner. She talks about this. She gives this analogy that I might butcher a little bit, but it's basically like, without the nervous system regulation, without capacity in your nervous system, it's kind of like having a dry sponge. And if you ever tried to put soap on a dry sponge, like it's just not going to do anything for you, you know? But if you start to get the sponge wet, you know, one drop at a time and the sponge slowly starts to regain some of its flexibility and some of its porous, um, behavior. And now you can actually soak up the soap and it starts to foam and it starts to act as the cleaning agent that it is. That's kind of like what happens when you work on the nervous system and you start regulating a lot of the therapies and other modalities because nervous system experts will tell you nervous system work isn't the only thing. It's just an essential piece of the puzzle most of the time because it helps everything else stick, helps everything else sink in and integrate. And I think that is what I have experienced in starting that work. I love that. So first of all, I love that analogy. I think that's a great, great analogy. And I love um, really just saying, I mean, that's not the end all be all, but that helps everything stick, especially because lately I've been noticing um, just fads, fads with clients, fads just kind of going around. Um, I was just like a clinical dietitian and just like the fat, the food fads especially are fascinating to watch. And lately in health and wellness, there's definitely been this parasite, parasite fad, if you will. Um, and it's, you know, as soon as you get rid of parasites and we're not talking, you know, a month or two, these, these, these folks are, are doing parasite cleansing for years. And then wondering, A, whether highly depleted, I'd love to go back to the minerals just in, in that regard, because lately it's so interesting. I've been putting clients first thing on minerals before anything, and it's just, it's such a game changer. Um, I think that, the, you know, the amount of depletion from food, from soil, et cetera, is, is just out of control. But 
I think that it's really interesting when we get stuck on these things, for example, like I just, I just need to get rid of all these parasites. Two years later, you're still taking the exact same thing. And, and then that's happening. Yeah, it, it, exactly. Exactly. And where is the, the other component here? And so it, it's fascinating to me when you, when I, when I, as a clinician, you know, for example, say, well, there might be something else going on. You know, you're more than welcome to stay on that if that's what feels right for you. But let's work on some form of regulation because A, these parasites, if you really believe that you have them, they might be expelled a little bit easier. And B, you might realize that, you know, what you've been doing for two years that hasn't made you any progress might be something, you know, might be something else. And so I think, you know, really merging merging the nervous system with all of these things, whether it's a fad going on or whether it's just someone that, you know, has candida has been taking my statin for two years, you know, and isn't seeing any progress. It's like, well, then let's look beyond this, this clinical ailment and figure out why this solution, quote unquote, isn't working or in your mind is working and you've had to be on it for so many years because it's just unnatural, just kind of like sitting at a computer for 12 hours a day, you know, like you were doing. It's just unnatural to be kind of expecting a different result when you're only willing to kind of dabble in one thing because that's what, you know, a doctor has told you or, or whatever, you know, I mean, if, if that's what the white coat is telling you and that's what you believe, it might be time to kind of look on and, and look past that. And I think that really ties into the nervous system because there's a lot of this you know, scared mentality, if you will, to try something else. So, oh, I have these GI parasites. I've gotten rid of all of them. Okay, well, then you probably, you know, most likely have some parasites in your brain. Let's get rid of those. And there's this, nope, I can't. And it's immediate, you know, it's this, it's, it's, it's beyond anxiety. And I think that really ties a lot into the nervous system regulation of let's look a little bit deeper of why, why you're not getting better. Well, it's scary because the nervous system work feels like doing nothing. Exactly. Exactly. I had to look myself in the eye and say, maybe nothing is exactly what you need. (laughs) Like, you know, I've been like spinning my wheels for so long and, you know, intuitively, I think that people who do a lot of cleansing and protocols, like, and when I say protocols, most people here, they know what I'm, what I'm talking about. They know the intense, like really detailed protocols that have you taking stuff morning, noon, and night and having like detox reactions and feeling like crap all the time. I'm sure we're all familiar. Like if, if that is your life and you're not seeing sustainable, like incremental progress, there is something else at play. And intuitively, in my opinion, it's almost always unresolved trauma. Like there is unresolved, like stored survival stress in the body. And it is so scary to, you know, and I'm not saying you have to abandon everything that you're doing, but it is scary to take a different approach and work with the nervous system because it is so, um, it is just so gentle, at least nervous system work should be gentle, especially if you are bed bound, chronically ill, you know, struggling to function, it really needs to be gentle. And it's so incremental and paced that it feels like nothing, but I, I explain it like, um, if you have two scales and on the right side of the scale, you have all of these insults, you have lime mold, 
vaccine injury, you know, EMF, like toxic food, pollution, like all of these things that are just weighing you down on the, on the right side. And then on the left side, you have, you know, connection and safety and a little spark, a little glimmer of joy, even if it's for 10, 10 seconds or one second, <laughs> you know, you have the consistent nervous system practices that don't have to be perfect, but they do have to be consistent and you're slowly rewiring. And what you're doing is you're stacking up your capacity and your ability to regulate and your resilience on this left-hand side of the scale. And it might take a while if the right-hand side of your scale is really weighed down and you have a lot of like, you know, you have a, a lot of assaults in the history of your body, your emotional system, it may take a while, but eventually that left side has to outweigh the right. Um, which again, which is why it's so important in that healing phase to like have, be boundaried up and have um, like high, high respect for your own limits um, and your own boundaries, because this is a time when we don't want to be adding, if we can help it, we don't want to be adding to what's on on the right side of the scale, but it does feel like doing nothing. I'm telling you, it took me like almost a year of doing the nervous system work before I was like, okay, I think it's working. <laughs> and a year is a long time. Samantha, I just have to jump in here because this is something we don't talk about enough on this podcast. I like to focus on, this is probably my fault with this podcast, exactly what people do to kill Lyme bacteria, Babesia, reactivated Epstein-Barr virus, right? What are you doing to kill the pathogens? But in my own personal experience, I've learned no matter what I'm doing to kill the pathogens, whatever they may be, if I'm not addressing my nervous system and I'm going to constitute a fight or flight, I'm still not going to get better, right? So I think this is, this is something that we need to talk more about. I'm so happy that you and Margo had this exchange and will continue shortly to have this exchange to emphasize the importance of the nervous system. But I want to ask, in addition to doing your nervous system work, I know there were some other things you've done and, I, and we stalked your social media, not to be creepy, right? But we, 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 um, we did some research on you before this podcast. And we know you've done some other things in addition to nervous system work to help your body and healing and aid in your healing. So can you talk to us about what you did to complement the nervous system work to take this holistic full body approach to heal whatever was going on? You mentioned, right, mold, you had EMF sensitivities, all kinds of things that were just stacking on and causing your pot to boil over to lead you to be sick, right? Yeah. Um, I, I really just didn't start seeing any change in my system until like I, I changed the way that I was living. So for me, that looked like I quit my job. I, cause for me, that was like filling up my bucket every day with nine hours of stress and computer work. And I was, I was breaking down. I, I told my partner, if I don't leave here, like this is going to kill me. Um, and I had, I had to quit. So, um, you know, luckily I had been paying into an insurance for long-term disability. So that was something that was working in my favor, but, um, yeah, it, it took me about a year after quitting to like actually slow down because like Margo was saying, there's sort of like this, even when you rest, it's like, you need more rest. And there, because of that addiction chemically, physiologically to the stress that's living inside of your body. It took me about a year to even like start healing after I quit my job. Like almost like it took me a, a whole year to be like, ah, you know, like I can, oh, I'm not in that toxic 
like stressful situation anymore. Okay. Like we're physically safe now. And then my body just like opened the floodgates of, (laughs) of all the stored sensation because I was eating well. I wasn't stressing myself by doing more protocols that I didn't have the baseline nutrition stores to handle. I wasn't equipped to handle. Um, I was focusing on getting outside. I was spending sometimes like four hours outside. If as as much as weather would allow, I would be outside as much as possible. Um, I said no to like everything. I just stopped going out. I mean, my social interaction was very limited. You know, occasionally people would come by and I'm not saying everybody has to go full hermit, but that's what worked for me was just like really focusing on like it felt like I almost needed to go back to infancy. This is so weird, but I told my partner, I said, I feel like a baby. Like, I feel like I am literally learning how to live life as a completely new person. And it was like, I quit my job. All of my like stored survival stress started coming out. It's called, um, coming out of functional freeze that go, 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 constantly stressed, can't relax. That's a functional freeze state where you're like able to live and you're working out and you're going to your work, but actually you're, you're frozen. Um, like there's stored survival stress under the surface, like a lake. (laughs) And there's like a lot of activity actually happening under that frozen surface. For me, quitting my job allowed me to start thawing out and the thawing out is really uncomfortable if you have a lifetime of stored stress. (laughs) So it starts coming out and I'm like, oh my God, I'm getting worse. Everything is getting worse. But there was this little voice in me. Like I had done just enough nervous system education that I knew like there was this tiny voice and I had to get really like present and quiet to hear her. And she was like, you know that this is the way because it's the way you have been resisting for 10 years. This is the thing that you didn't want to do. You didn't want to slow down. You didn't want to take a break. You didn't want to rest and you didn't want to stop doing. You didn't want to start, stop grasping at all of these things, thinking that something outside of you is going to heal you and fix you and make you better. And you didn't want to take the long route, (laughs) even though in my mind, I was like, oh, this protocol could take six months. That's the long route. I'm really in it for the long haul. This was a different kind of long haul. But when I got really quiet, I could hear that voice saying, it's okay. This is the way, you know, it's the way. And then I would get really worked up and I would get upset and I'd be like, oh, nothing is changing. But whenever I I came back to myself, I could always hear that little voice. And I just knew like something in me just knew that this is what I needed. And now like, I feel like eating well and, you know, supplementing and like getting sun and, and doing all these things and like getting out of mold. Like I can really feel it. Like I've done homeopathy before, but this past month I did a constitutional homeopathy remedy and it actually worked. And I, I gotta be honest, I didn't expect it to work, <laughs> but this, I think is a perfect example of having that regulation and your sponge being pliable and having you know, a porous nature to it where something can actually sink in. And it, I I gotta say, it feels really good to have that baseline. Samantha, my final question before Margo continues on with this brilliant discussion you're having, I just want to ask, we know from your social media, you did a lot of things and you also just mentioned home, you know, homeopathics, right? So if you can just share specifically, what things did you do that 
helped your, you had bad headaches all the time, right? And I know you found some tools to aid with those headaches while you're going through your healing journey. And I know you found some things like these specialized tea tonics that really helped you. And you found things like the homeopathic, you can also define the homeopathics and what they were and how they helped. And the other things you were doing off to the side and just share that with our audience before Margo continues the conversation about what you were learning about the nervous system. And I just have to say as an aside, I loved your analogy about the ice, right? And then as you're starting to have it thaw out, I mean, that visual was beautiful. So thank you for sharing that. That was that was a really powerful visual you gave us. So thank you for that. Sure, glad that it resonated. I like using visuals and analogies. It's a little harder when I know that I'm not actually on video, but I hope I explained it well enough. So the headaches uh, specifically, I started seeing immediate progress with that when I started. Um, excuse me, when I started uh, taking magnesium, which you know, I'm sure that's not groundbreaking info for anyone here, but magnesium and then working on my microbiome, you know, I was taking, um, some probiotics and then over time, I just, you know, I made this classic mistake where it's like a little of something is good. So a lot must be better. And I started taking too much magnesium, which then depleted my potassium and sodium stores. And so now I'm in a phase of like, re restoring, um, my sodium potassium levels and doing like very light magnesium. But, um, yeah, I'm trying to think like fascia work has definitely helped. Uh, I was seeing a Gillespie certified craniofascial, uh, practitioner, and that was amazing. I live too far now to do that, but I was doing that every week. And that was also very helpful for me. I have to ask, what are you, what's in your tea tonics? Because you have them all over your social media and I love to drink tea. So when I saw that, I was super fascinated about your post about your tea tonic and you had the recipe, I believe in the, in the comments, right? So is that just something you enjoy or is that something you take when you're sick? And you know, what, what are the benefits from your standpoint of taking that tonic and what's in it? I'm not sure I'm familiar with what post you're talking about. I went pretty deep. This is probably like three years ago. So it makes sense that you don't, you don't remember. So we, we stalked you pretty hard, Samantha. So that's okay. <laughs> I honestly don't know. <laughs> I think it was, I think it was, and I don't even want to be cool, but what I'll do is I'll find a link to it and I'll drop it in the show notes. So anybody listening that wants to learn more, I'll link directly to your post and they can learn more in the show notes if they're interested in that part of your journey. So let's get back to the good stuff, right? The stuff that you and Margo were talking about. So you were talking about all this groundbreaking stuff you were learning and we've heard, especially on this podcast in the chronic Lyme community, we hear about brain rewiring all the time. We've heard about Gupta. We've heard about DNRS. We've heard about my vital side. We've heard about, you know, a lot of these other and these other tools like even EMDR, you know, to a degree. Did you ever try DNRS, EMDR, things like that? And it sounds like they may have been precursors to what you studied with Irene Lyon when she became your mentor, right? Yes. So I did DNRS. I actually did it for a short period in 2016. Um, and looking back, I could actually see like that it was helping me. I just didn't know that it was helping me. And then I stopped doing it. Um, and then I just see, this is what I mean. Like there were so many times when I sort of like started to dabble in the nervous system work and then ended up rerouting and going into the physical because I think intuitively when you have a lot of stuff buried and some part of you, even if it's unconscious knows that you have a lot of stuff buried, you just like, don't want to go there. Um, so I did actually one of the, I forgot to mention this. This is so funny. Of course I forgot to mention this, but one of the first diagnoses I ever received when I first started struggling 
uh, with my health was actually PTSD. And it was from a campus counselor. So it was like an, an, an informal diagnosis, but it didn't take her long, like meeting me once and having like a few conversations with me. She was like, yeah, like this is PTSD. And I was like, no, it's not, <laughs> you know, because I was like, well, I've never been abused to like, you know, I haven't been to war. Like there's, you know, nothing that warrants because this is 2012, you know, this isn't like the trauma conversation is not mainstream at this point, maybe in some circles, but not, not widely. So, um, I actually started doing, uh, DNRS. So that was my first uh, attempt at avoiding this work. <laughs> and then I started doing DNRS in 2016 and I think it was helping me, but, uh, I just didn't really, it's so incremental and so slow that I don't think I realized it was helping me until now looking back and I went immediately back into like protocols and cleanses and supplements and trying to change my diet. I went vegan for like nine months. Um, and then I, w I came back to DNRS actually, cause I started going, I mean, I had seen talk therapists a few times, but it was mostly just for me to offload from like a cognitive place. <laughs> what was in my brain and just sort of vent for like an hour, uh, which I did not find helpful, <laughs> spoiler alert. And then in 2019, I started seeing a therapist who was trained in somatic experiencing, but I did not understand the concept of it. And um, I just wasn't ready to go into the body. You know, sometimes it takes people a long time to even drop into the body from being in the mind for so long. And I went back to DNRS during that time and I did it for three months consistently. And it was so helpful for me. I mean, I started having like way less reactions to chemicals and like fragrances. Like we went to one of my favorite antique shops and they always have a candle burning. And I would sometimes wear a mask in there if it was like too strong. Um, and I would go and didn't have to wear a mask and didn't have any headaches afterward. You know, I would still shower when I got home because I just don't want to be caked in it, but I wasn't having reactions. So that was really cool. And I just started having like a really, I just felt hopeful. I felt positive about life. And then, um, in February, like three months in February, 2021 is just when I had been out of my job for just long enough where I feel like I started to thaw out and I sort of fell off my practice because things got really hectic. And then I started doing actually more of the somatic work. But I think that the, I think DNRS was a really good introduction for me into the nervous system. Um, and I know that some people do get full healing from it, which is great. I'm happy for them. And I think for some people, it's a, it's a starting point and a stepping stone into um, greater depths, you know, DNRS does keep you more in your head with the visualizations and stuff. It's a little bit less in the body. And for some people that is what they need right now. They don't need to go into the body yet. That's something else I meant to say, um, earlier when Margo and I were talking, there's just, there can be a lot of pressure sometimes when you start seeing stuff about trauma work and the nervous system. And it's like, Oh no, I've got to heal all my unresolved trauma and like dig into all the nitty gritty. Um, and if you're, you know, in a situation where you're still not even functioning on a daily basis and you're in bed and you're, you're miserable, like it's probably not the time to go into that. And that's okay. You know, it's, it's okay to go slow. In fact, it's slower is faster is what they say. 
in the nervous system healing chronic illness world. <laughs> so yes, I did DNRS. It was a great stepping stone. I'm really glad that I did it. And I also needed more. Yeah, I think it's so interesting. I was going to segue into the DNRS um, a little bit when my, my mic cut out there for a second, but I wanted to go back because that's exactly it. It's like DNRS. I did DNRS as well, and I think it's very heady, but I also think that for me personally, it, you know, it, it was interesting and, you know, I learned, but it didn't, it didn't fully resonate with me. Um, it also felt to me, it is, you know, any nervous system work is consistency is key, but it felt to me a bit like kind of a job, you know, it was very, very heady. But I think the way that you just phrase that is so beautiful. Like, yes, it is very heady, but that is where some people are at. And if it doesn't resonate, that's okay. There are other, you know, modality systems, et cetera. But I know that, you know, for, for someone like, like you and I, it, to me, it personally felt kind of like another protocol. And that was kind of what I was trying to steer away from. Um, and I've heard a lot of people in the chronic illness community that are trying to get out of the head and more in the body and having the same experience, but feel like maybe there's something quote unquote wrong with them because it's not helpful and it is heady. So I'm really glad that you um, touched on that. And then also just going back to the nervous system work, really kind of feeling like nothing, so to say, you know, it doesn't feel like you're making a ton of progress because this thing, does, you know, I mean, this, this kind of thing does take a year, two years, you know, et cetera. It's, it's a continual process, but ver versus, I should say, these, these protocols, you know, and, and to me, a protocol sometimes is totally needed. I'm not negating that, but to me, a protocol more implementing that kind of implies that there's something, you know, there's something broken in you. And it's also, it can become, I know a lot of times in this community, a full-time job, this protocol of, you know, I, I might not be working, but I have to do this at this hour and then this the next hour and then this at the next hour. And it's very rigid. It can be a little bit dogmatic at times. And then also kind of feeling like a stressor. And it might not because you're thinking about it as a survival tactic when you're sick. But it can definitely, to me, just feel a bit like here's another job that I have to do. And so really leaning into this work kind of lessens up the the need to, I need to do something versus I need to be, which can be extremely uncomfortable. Yes. Um, so as far as DNRS is concerned, and then I also, you know what, too, I also heard you mention about the fascia and it's so interesting just because we know, you know, trauma is really stored in the fascia. So I think it's interesting that, you know, cranial, you know, homeopathy, um, and then, and, and fascia work really, really help. I don't think we realize, you know, until fascia work is happening, how much, how much survival, how much trauma, you know, like how, how much stuff, so to say, is just stored in the fashion and the body really. Mm -hmm. It helps me a lot, especially because we were living in mold. And I think that that was another stressor on my system. And sometimes, sometimes you have to do things just to like counteract the effects of something else, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like if you can't afford an air filter or your air quality is especially bad, even with air filters, you may have to counterbalance that by going outside more or opening up your windows more, um, you know, just as an example. So um, the, yeah, the, 
the mold was really like taking an extra toll on me. So that's why I was doing a lot more fascia work. I still, I see value in it. I would still be doing it now, even not living in mold if I was closer, but, um, it was just especially needed. And then a time where I was like under a lot more physiological stress and, um, yeah, I, I, I think the, the fascia definitely is probably one of the more common places that people have stuck trauma, um, but it could also be in the diaphragms. It can be in the muscles, in the bones, in the skin. And that's one of the things I really loved about doing Irene's like long form program. She works, you, you work your way through the different uh, levels and layers of the body. And that, that's part of my, my training with transforming touch under Stephen Terrell as well. So it's been really interesting to see, like, I remember doing some diaphragm work in my upper respiratory and feeling like waves of grief coming in the days after, after working with those, those areas specifically. So I've seen it, you know, in, in action, in my own experience. And do you feel like the the diaphragm work, I mean, there's there's so much right there, but just very basic thought process here of physiologically literally being able to get more air and have that literal body open and contract, do you mm -hmm. feel like that is where you notice kind of a lot of stuff coming up, so to say? I think it's about coherence in the body systems, you know, and it's about having more space. So I guess it could be in like a physical sense of like getting and um, receiving more oxygen and allowing oxygen to reach your tissues because there's more of it to go around. Um, but I think for me, it feels more about just the coherence and overall having more space in the body. Um, the best way that I can explain this um, might be like if you were outside and you know you can feel the sun on your skin and it feels warm you close your eyes and you can see the glow of the sun and you feel like that slightly cool dewy feel of the grass and it's like between your toes and underneath your feet you hear birds chirping in the distance and you open your eyes and you see a tree and the branches are swaying in the wind and the the leaves are just twinkling and you see the blue sky peeking out through the trees. Can you feel that in your body? Like, where do you feel that? For most people, it's like you feel more flow. You just feel more space. That's kind of the feeling that coherence brings. It's like you just feel, you feel more space. You feel more flow. There's less contraction. There's less um, bracing. You know, and bracing is really common, especially like in that solar plexus, like right underneath the ribs, like that's kind of the safety center of the body. There's often a lot of bracing there. And that's one of the diaphragms that, that you can work with. Yeah, that that's, that, yeah, that's so spot on. And right when you said coherence, my mind just went to HRV from just like a scientific point of view. Um, I do a lot of work with heart, with heart math and it's just interesting because as soon as the diaphragm is really connected, you know, here and in the body, um, coherence literally goes through the roof and HRV really is able to increase heart rate variability, um, is able to kind of increase. So it's really interesting to just hear, you know, how coherence really is, is related in so many of these things. 
And I think it's also really interesting. You touched on after DNRS and after a lot of this, this nervous system work mainly that homeopathy was able to actually really work. Um, and right there, it's, it's just so interesting because there's a lot of this protocol to protocol to protocol and it's not work. It's not working, so to say, as we like to say. And you know, really, I think it works for some and not for others because exactly. there's a different baseline of regulation from person to person. And that's why, as we talked about a little bit off offline before we jumped on here, you know, one per two people can have Lyme show up in their system and only one of them is sick. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And there's so much that just goes back to that of, yeah, terrain theory, regulated regulation capacity. I mean, there's so many things that just all really really intertwine in this. I think there's always a, you know, what, what came first, the chicken or the egg, but it's just really going back to how was your system before you contracted this, so to say, if you will. Um, if you wouldn't mind talking about the transforming touch um, aspect of, of what you do and your, your education in that, I think that would be really interesting. Sure. So, quite often with early developmental trauma um there is like there's more implicit memory there's less of an ability to put things to words it's a lot less cognitive it's very much in the body you know trauma is in the body period but it's it's a little bit more complex when you're looking at infant um or early developmental trauma like pre-verbal so working with the body and the stress organs is really important so I started working with, um, I started doing training under Stephen Terrell. Uh, his training is called Transforming the Experience-Based Brain, TEB. And Transforming Touch is available as an in-person uh, protocol or as a, a virtual experience. So you're basically creating for your client a safe container where they don't have to do anything there's no expectation, there's no talk therapy, there's no go to this part of your body and feel this or track this sensation, you know, which that in some cases like somatic experiencing has been a wonderful addition to the nervous system work for me. Um, but it's not always necessary or helpful in certain phases or for certain issues to go in and track the sensations of the body. So this is just you come in and if you're in person, you are laying on a massage table or another type of like physical therapy table. And the practitioner is going to place their hands on different areas of your body, placing special emphasis on your stress organs. So your kidney and adrenal areas and your brainstem. And there's all sorts of different enhancements that they can do specifically for like the HPA axis or um, the different uh, reflexes. So like the moral reflex, the starter ref the startle reflex or um, fear paralysis, like to help integrate those early reflexes if they are unintegrated, which for those who don't know, you typically integrate those early in life, but some of them remain un unintegrated, you know, result of like trauma or they can become unintegrated. Like even if they integrated early in life, they can unintegrate because of like shock traumas later. So the practitioner is placing special emphasis on your stress organs and just basically creating a safe place for you to be 
quote unquote held. And there's nothing for you to do. You don't have to think about anything specific. They're not doing like, you know, traditional energy work or anything like that. And for a lot of people, this is, this is important to have sort of a ritualistic, um, like you're doing every four minutes, they're moving their hands on your body. So the, the brain and the nervous system starts to get accustomed to that every four minutes. And there's sort of like this expectation that's being fulfilled every time the hands are moved and placed on different areas of the body, which is really cool. Um, and it, for me, like the first time that I experienced it, it just felt like I was like a baby again, <laughs> you know, we're kind of weird about touch in our society, right? It's a very over-sexualized society, but yet we're kind of like touch phobic in some ways, you know? Um, <laughs> yes, I cannot agree more. Most people's experience with touch is either medicalized touch, especially if you have chronic illness or, um, you know, have like a history of medical trauma or uh, sexual touch, whether that's like consensual or, you know, non-consensual. Um, which would then be classified as like an abusive touch, um, like an assaulting touch. And that those are, you know, it's not as common to have a safe, you know, non-sexual physical touch experience, you know? And for some people that is really needed to work at that really early pre-verbal level. So for me, the first time that I experienced it, I just felt like a baby. <laughs> I felt so safe and so held and I like cried afterwards because I was like, wow, I don't think I've ever experienced this kind of, of touch and just felt like really safe, you know, and, and it's the practitioner passing their regulation on co-regulating with the client. Yes. And so often, I mean, that's just not done as a, as a newborn young and then especially throughout the, the quote-unquote aging process if we will wow. um, it's just there's no there's minimal to no co-regulation and something really interesting just to dabble on especially because we're two women um the amount in this community of sexual trauma of feeling like things are not not consensual there's a lot of that in that community this community and i in the beginning, I was like, this is just weird. This is just coincidental. And, you know, as I've, I've seen, I've seen clients, I've seen people evolve in this, in this, in this space. So to say, I really think a lot of this goes back to, I mean, yeah, a touch being extremely important, but be consensual touch being really important. And there's a lot of non-consensual touch uh, that seems to be a common denominator with people that are, are chronically ill, especially women. And so I think really going back to that, that co-regulation of maybe this is what, you know, just an idea of like, maybe this is why the protocol isn't sticking that you're on if it's just a supplementation type of thing. Or maybe, you know, maybe these are, these are all little clues as to why this is helping, but it's not fully ingrained and really sticking. Yeah. Um, I, I don't see a lot of, of work being done in that realm because it doesn't seem, you know, just logically too related. But if we really go back the amount of women that I talked to that say, oh, you know, the first time I, you know, engaged in this behavior, it didn't seem consensual or X, Y, and Z. There's so much of that. And I don't think that it's a coincidence, if you will. Yeah. And that, you know, the birth, um, 
and medical trauma can actually be interpreted by the body as sexual trauma as well, especially for infant boys and in circumcision practices. Um, but even for girls, like for example, a catheter, um, you know, it's, yeah. it's not as cut and dry as people might think that it is, you know, and then you're absorbing your parents' um, ideas about sex as well and sexuality. So even if there's no overt claim uh, being made about sex or about sexuality, you can pick up on those things energetically, just, you know, unconsciously. And then of course there's purity culture. And then there's also like this over-sexualized culture and there's really not a lot of healthy sexuality going on in our world these days. It's uh, pretty much one extreme or the other most of the time, which, wow, we could apply that to so many things. <laughs> exactly. I was just going to say, I mean, talk about, yeah, just so, so we many love things. extremes in our society, don't we? <laughs> we love extremes. We love uh, overcorrecting. Yes, that good versus bad, you know, red versus blue. We like this like very clear delineation of black and white thinking, which is another sign of nervous system imbalance, by the way. Yes, yes. I mean, I know for, and just for myself, the, the first thing I really discovered was like, wait, this is very black and white. Life is not black and white. Life is gray. Yeah. But the fact that the first instinct to jump to is bam or bam, you know, it's not, it's not black, it's not white, you know, what if there is a middle ground, and it's almost interesting, it's interesting to really just observe once you come into that, that middle ground of finding the, the gray, so to say, and in my experience, it's been very interesting to just witness the triggers within other people, because it's so ingrained, and it's so, you know, nervous system, this deregulation, dysregulation of, you know, I've observed that it, it makes people quite uncomfortable to be in that, that gray. And it's hard um, when you are in a state of survival, like chronic illness, which is why so many of us have probably found ourselves in dogmatic positions about health and protocols and the right diet and the right this and the right that. Because when your body is devoting and your brain is devoting all of this energy to like survival patterns, doesn't really have the energy to process nuance. So, you know, I think it's, it's very common and nothing to be ashamed of because I've been there too, that like the dogma um, with the diets and, and the, the different modalities and stuff is, is just very common. And I've, I've been through that as well. And as I've healed, I've been able to see, oh, okay, like this worked for me, but maybe it doesn't work for this person. And maybe I could be wrong about this and maybe there's more nuance to this situation. And that's been really interesting and really freeing actually. Very, very freeing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I could not agree more. And it just becomes so freeing when it's, you know, I mean, just specifically diet, diet wise, you know, it's this, I'm vegan. I'm vegan. <laughs> I'm paleo, you know, and it's, it's, it's just so dogmatic. It's exhausting. But it's definitely that that survival that survival kind of mechanism. Um, I'd love to just hear your experience with kind of eyesight related to the nervous system, and you know, obviously, there's definitely visually the eyes change um, based on based on fight fight flight. Fright, flight, freeze, <laughs> and, and and that that whole handful of things. Um, but 
you know, when, when the system is more relaxed, I know the eyes, the eyes change and I'd love to just hear, and then the whole sun component, um, you know, obviously sunglasses and sun are huge versus my way of going about things, which is without sunglasses. So I just love to hear your perspective on, on that and kind of your experience. Yeah, my, my vision definitely like kept declining as my illness got worse. And then this past year doing the nervous system work um, and intentionally spending a lot more time outside was the first time I was able to see a decrease in the strength of my prescription by a whole diopter, which is pretty cool. And most conventional eye doctors will tell you is not possible. They're wrong. <laughs> I know people who have made changes in their, in their eyesight, um, and healed. And there is, uh, I actually have a post on my page. I, it's one of my more recent posts called how I, he how I am healing my vision naturally. And I have a lot of resources in there. That would be a really great place to start, but yeah, my, my vision has improved mostly due to being outside, just less visual strain and also the nervous system work, you know, resolving some of those stored survival responses. Cause when you are in startle, your eyes are naturally darting around looking for the threat. Um, and when you are relaxed, it's much more of a mm, exploratory orienting. Yes. I love that. I love that exploring instead of like searching. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. So you just want to tell everyone your Instagram handle so they can go, I, A, follow you, and then B, uh, check out that most recent post on vision. Yeah. My handle is at Samantha.naturally. Awesome. Um, thank you so, so, so much for coming on. This is so helpful. I know this is going to help so many people, especially especially the people that have, you know, just kind of exhausted a lot of options and are just struggling to really kind of gain some homeostasis. I think this is going to be so, so, so helpful. I know, yeah, I know this is just going to help so many people. So I'm so grateful uh, that you came on. I know Matt would definitely agree. Um, yeah, I think we can definitely say this was, this is so, so, so helpful and definitely just a little bit of a different point of view versus the, you know, take this, take that, take this, please. Well, thank you so much for having me. I had fun and Really enjoyed getting into this stuff with you guys. Thank you for listening to our Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Samantha Lynn. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Samantha, please check her out on Instagram at samantha.naturally. Second, if you've enjoyed this episode of our Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends on social media. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at takebootcamp.com slash bite to view our blueprint. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on your podcast platform of choice. And finally, if you'd like to search our podcast library of over 300 episodes, subscribe to our email list, or share feedback with us, please check out our website at takebootcamp.com. Thank you, as always, for listening.